Hi friends, David Beshevkin here, a little bit under the weather, but it is an absolute honor to share with you a little bit about the life of Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan, whose yard site is the 14th of Shvat. He was born in 1934 and passed away at the age of 48 in 1983. Really a remarkable life that unfortunately we know all too little about. For those who are interested in a deeper dive in his biography, the person who really did the most research on this, is a professor named Alan Brill, and you can check that out on his blog. He has a series of posts about it, and he has an article uh, that he published in a journal called Kabbalah in America, which costs a few hundred dollars, so I don't expect anybody to buy that. Uh, but his article is called Aryeh Kaplan's Quest for the Lost Jewish Traditions of Science, Psychology, and Prophecy. And he really lays out uh, the key components of his biography, which for most were an absolute mystery. I'll share a little bit, Rabbi Ari Kaplan was not born uh, into a rabbinic family. He was not even born by the name or known by the name Arye. Uh, he was known to those who knew him at a much younger age as Lenny, Len. Uh, I met his, uh, his wife, uh, Toby, who's still alive, and uh, she calls him. She calls him Len Kaplan. That's how she met him, and he was born into a uh, Sephardic family. I think they had a Ladino background, and he... Uh, was not originally sent to yeshiva. His parents uh, did not initially send him to yeshiva. His mother died when he was a fairly young teenager, and that's really where his journey began. He felt this pull to say Kaddish for his mother, and he showed up to shul. Uh, I don't think he owned a pair of tefillin. He certainly didn't know how to put them on. He didn't know how to read from a sitter. And uh, a chassid who saw him in the shtibel came up to him, uh, and showed him his way and saw this child had potential and urged him that you should enroll in yeshiva. And he eventually enrolled in Tarvadas and went to later on to learn in the Mir in Yerushalayim. He spent a little bit of time, I believe, in a kolel under the auspices of Reb Simcha Wasserman along with Reb Mendel Weinbach and Reb Nissen Wolpin in Los Angeles. But he really took off as a learning uh, superstar. Uh, we don't really have all that much writing from those early years, uh, but he was a, a recognized Talmud uh, Chacham. He really was a, a remarkable uh, writer, which we'll talk about more, but that didn't come out in his early years. Uh, he eventually went to get a BA in physics from the University of Louisville, uh, which he completed in 1961. And then he got a master's in physics from the University of Maryland, uh, shout out to all the Ner Yisrael Chevra who go there, and also Rabbi Ari Kaplan's an alumnus, uh, in 1963. And he worked for a little bit at the National Bureau of Standards of Fluid Mechanics, a division in the field of magneto-hydrodynamics research, which I know absolutely nothing about. Uh, but he really did work there. Uh, that was what he was first excited about, and really understanding physics and the properties of our material universe. Uh, and he eventually got disenfranchised by this. You know, he did make a little bit of a career in this. He was mentioned in the who's who of physics, which I remember was always listed in his bio. Uh, but he eventually, in 1965, which you're doing the math, he's 29 years old. He, 20, uh, 31 years old, I'm sorry, uh, 30, 31 years old. Uh, he's 31 years old, and he takes his first Steller. He he bounced around in shuls in Mason City, Iowa. He was in a shul in Dover, New Jersey. He was a shul in D 
to Tennessee for a while. Uh, usually he was the rabbi of shuls that were uh, completely uh, unaffiliated congregants. He was not, uh, never secured a shul of any renown, and uh, he would bounce around, and it was really uh, not working for him. Eventually, in 1970, he moved to Albany, where he became the rabbi of, of Ohev Shalom, which is a, a shul that I believe is still there. I don't think that it's orthodox. And <clears throat> he became a, uh, a Hillel director at the University of Albany, and I'm sure there are people who still remember him then. He was giving over Torah then. Uh, that was his longest stay as a shul rabbi. He stayed there for seven years until eventually, I believe because of children, and he wasn't really a very successful uh, pulpit rabbi. It wasn't really working for him. Uh, he settled down in, I'm sorry, not seven years, one year. Uh, he was there for one year. In 1971, after one year in Albany, just uh, correct the, the record on that, uh, he finally moved uh, to Brooklyn, New York, where he lived for the rest of his life. He lived a little bit uh, on the outskirts of the kind of where the main action was. I, I know one of his students, uh, Shaul Magid, uh, who uh, I wouldn't call him a, a main student. Uh, Shaul is a scholar affiliated with uh, Dartmouth, and Shaul remembers going to his house on Friday nights. Uh, he would have onegs, and he would share Torah, and he was a part of that underground, almost subversive scene of seekers in the 1960s and 1970s with this spiritual awakening that came with, uh, you know, the hippies and Woodstock and all this chevra who are looking for some deeper meaning in life, he was one of many people uh, who opened up their home and their lives and their scholarship uh, to to be a part to be to be a part of this. Now, what really made him remarkable was not his work uh, that he did in his Shabbos house in Brooklyn, though. You know, people who spent time there went on to really do remarkable, kind of really out of the box, out of this world. Uh, stuff. What really made him most remarkable was his writing career. And he started writing in kind of these teeny tiny pamphlets. And somebody named Rabbi Pinchas Stolper, uh, who was a Talmud of Rav Hutner, and who also, more importantly, happened to be the national director and founding national director of NCSY, picked up one of these pamphlets, uh, and he was nishtoimim. He was shocked. He was astonished by what he read. He saw somebody who was grappling with the world of physics and the properties of the material world, but also trying to find the meaning of God and spirituality within all of the advances of science. And NCSY at the time, which was run by Rabbi Pinchas Stolper, was really struggling. They were trying to figure out how do we infuse more substance into the work that we do? NCSY, which was founded in the mid-1950s. So this is 15 years later, uh, more than 15 years later, almost 20 years later, and NCSY was trying to figure out how do we infuse substance into what we're doing? We're good at kind of the social events and the Shabbatonim and we have advisors and we bring in rabbis, but how do we find a rabbinic leader who can bring the world of Judaism and express it in the language that's going to resonate in NCSY teens who are coming from homes, a lot of them orthodox homes, conservative homes, uh, but the yeshiva day school system in the 60s and 70s, the universe that my father grew up in, quite frankly, was not the world that we live in today. And to find Rabbeim who could speak the language in English, grappling with all of the issues that kids, teenagers in those years were seeking was not a simple task. And Rabbi Stolper asked him to 
uh, begin writing for NCSY. And the first pamphlet that he asked him to write was the pamphlet on tefillin. Um, there's a story coming out in Mishpacha, which I hope you'll take the time to read next week by Rabbi Eitan Kobri, who has some remarkable uh, details about the speed of his writing, how quickly he churned out manuscripts. It, it doesn't take a journalist or a scholar to realize how quickly he was churning out these manuscripts, because in his very short lifetime of 48 years, and he began really this writing uh, in the 1970s, it was really the last 10 years of his life when he was really picking up writing, um, aside from the 10 uh, books that he wrote for NCSY, and the reason why you know I'm sharing this now is we just republished them with Art Scroll, and if you want to find out more about them, and I'll share the link at the end as well, you can visit ncsy.org/kaplan. But aside from the books that he put out for NCSY, the most famous of which is likely "If You Were God," uh, he did jaw-droppingly astounding work um, from a Torah perspective and also uh, from a scholarship perspective. Uh, he went and found manuscripts and translated the Ma'am Loes. He translated the entire Torah, um, what's famously known as the Living Torah. Uh, he wasn't able to finish all of Tanakh. He died in the middle of the project. It was actually completed by a, a personal teacher of mine, uh, Rabbi Dr. Yaakov Elman of Blessed Memory. But... He did the Living Torah. He translated Rabbi Nachman's stories. He translated Sefer Yitzira, which still is studied uh, in the eyes of contemporary scholars of mysticism, are, are, are stunned by this, that in one lifetime somebody could plumb to the depths of mysticism. Uh, the Torah, translation in English, in one lifetime, uh, is something we often don't pause to appreciate that one person living in Brooklyn, New York, did this without almost any renown uh, within his own lifetime. Wasn't as famous as a lot of people uh, think. He was eulogized, he was given an obituary uh, in the New York Times for whatever that is worth, so he was famous enough to be there. Uh, but but wasn't uh, didn't have groupies in the way that we think of it today. You know, he he would go to every NCSY Shabbaton. He would stay up extraordinarily late teaching Torah. Uh, but really, uh, what he did and what he bled his entire life for was tra these translations and these presentations of Torah, the Jew uh, the Handbook of Jewish Thought, which is two volumes, which is written sequentially, almost in the style of the Ramchal, starting with the principles of the existence of God, but building out to everything, the development of Torah Shabbat Peh, Amunas Chachamim, everything is in there. Those two volumes, if somebody were to ask me, what is the work that I should begin that could really help and enhance my appreciation for Rabbi Ari Kaplan. I always say the the handbook of uh, of Jewish thought is simply uh, jaw dropping. How organized, how sequential was, and, and to understand that these svarim weren't always in front of him, and he was doing a lot of this uh, from memory uh, is simply. Um, it's it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine one person having this kind of output in his lifetime and living in in really absolute poverty because of the recognition that he got um, didn't lead to the job offers and programs and speaking gigs that were that we're used to today. And you know, as somebody who knows his family uh, personally, um, really supporting him, supporting his works, and bringing his memory alive. Uh, in this new generation, is something that is uh, is really long overdue. Uh, the, my relationship to Ari Kaplan is deeply personal. 
uh, which is why it was so important and I was so appreciative to be asked to, to be able to talk a little bit about his life. In some ways, I occupy the chair that Rabbi Ari Kaplan occupied in NCSY. Uh, he was, I don't think he was called the Director of Education of NCSY, which was my title. I think he was called the Director of Publications. Uh, but everything that he did uh, and the model of what he imagined that Jewish outreach could be, where it's not watered down and kind of, uh, you know, just a, a cute hook and like, let me say something controversial and then come here boring to our Torah, but really looking at the purpose of outreach is to confront the most pressing issues of our time and using it to reimagine what Torah can confront and encounter. And it is an example that animates everything that I do in my life and everything that I do in my professional work. Uh, I will never reach uh, even the pinky toe of Rabbi Ari Kaplan in scholarship, in piety, in goodness, and righteousness. Uh, but the model of what he did, looking at Kirov as not just a window outwards, but an ability for the people inside who did have a yeshiva education, but using the work that outreach allows you to do, the questions that it allows you to confront, uh, I think is something that doesn't just enhance people who are unaffiliated, it transforms for the affiliated the expansiveness of what Torah actually is. It is a reminder of the breadth and the absolute unity that Torah encompasses. And if you look at the output of what Rabbi Arya Kaplan did in his lifetime, uh, it absolutely did that for Torah and it transformed what Torah, I think in my own personal life, uh, can mean for me and can really mean for all of us. You know, it's hard to share a specific Torah that Aryeh Kaplan um, provided to the world. I I don't have a specific quote that, you know, Aryeh Kaplan, you know, resonates with me and that I share with the world. Uh, instead, I think the Torah that he shared is about Torah itself, and it's threefold. It's number one, what I just mentioned, which is the expansiveness of Torah the confidence of Torah and the ability of our tradition and of Yiddishkeit to confront the most difficult problems fearlessly without shying in a corner, whispering, being concerned, but being able to write books on the most pressing issues and confront the most pressing topics without being worried, without saying, are we able to really provide something on this? Should we really be talking about this? Uh, there was a fearlessness. Uh, that he had with Torah, that I think our generation can learn a great deal from. I think there's a second aspect of Torah, which is that the way we express Torah matters. I think what Ari Kaplan provided to the world was a reminder that even the most esoteric and complicated ideas deserve garments that can be accessed and that can be appreciated by the masses. He was not satisfied allowing the Torah of Rabbi Nachman Breslov, of the great secrets of Kabbalah, to sit in an isolated shelf where only a handful of the generation could access their beauty and their majesty. He was committed to a Torah that was accessible to all and a Torah that can be transmitted to all. A Torah that is just for a, a handful of people um, is not a Torah that he was looking to preserve. He was looking to preserve a Torah that could be accessed, appreciated, 
animate and inspire an entire generation of the masses, and he had the skills and able to do so. He built doorways to areas of Torah, particularly his ideas of meditation, his confrontation of what God actually is, confronting that question in very real terms, confronting the idea that can we access that infinity, so to speak, of God, that Ein Sophius of God through meditation, uh, which were very real things that he was involved in uh, and really confronted the traditions that we have, not as something cool, not as a, a vart that can inspire, but as a very real system that you can access through it a higher level of consciousness. He, he believed in this with his entire soul and life and dedicated his life to it. So aside from the expansiveness of Torah and aside from the accessibility of Torah, I think the last and, and really most important thing uh, is, is the trajectory of Torah. Uh, Ari Kaplan uh, did not get a, a yeshiva education uh, really through all of elementary school. He enrolled as a teenager and began his journey then. And it was from a chance encounter that somebody saw somebody who was fumbling with a sitter and didn't know how to put on tefillin, was trying to say Kaddish for his wife. And he looked at this person and said, you're worth, you're worth investing in. You're worth becoming something. You, you are also deserving of a Jewish education. And it was that anonymous chassid, who I don't know who this was, who looked at a young Len Kaplan and was able to transform a young Len Kaplan into the timeless dozens of volumes that we now have from Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan. And I think everything that he did in his work is a reverberation is a continuation of that founding story. And I think that founding story tells us something about how we look at other Jews, how we look at other people fumbling around who don't uh, have the educational background that we may have, people who don't have the cadence and rhythm in their own religious lives. And instead of looking at them, dismissing them, being embarrassed by them, uh, looking at them and saying, you also have a trajectory that is worth investing in. And we don't know when we see a Len Kaplan who's going to become an Arya Kaplan and whether or not they become an Arya Kaplan trans translating dozens and dozens of volumes that you know were previously unaccessible. The very project of the translation was a reminder that it doesn't matter if Len Kaplan becomes Arya Kaplan because he was writing works for those Len Kaplans. And that it doesn't matter if they become in that revealed way in Arya Kaplan, but what I think he showed the world is that hidden and buried inside of every single Len Kaplan, anonymous Jew, bouncing around, kicked out of yeshivas, not, not given an education, not given a chance, doesn't know how to put on tefillin, doesn't know how to hold a sitter, just wants a little bit to say Kaddish and pay tribute to the tradition that they hold in their hand, that buried inside of every one of those Len Kaplans is an Arya Kaplan. And to treat and to approach every single Jew with the knowledge that underneath every single Len Kaplan is in fact a Rabbi Arya Kaplan, is the enduring Torah and enduring revelation that all of his translations, all of his life, and all of his legacy, I believe, continues to remind us. His neshama should have an aliyah, to learn more about Arya Kaplan, please visit ncsy.org slash Kaplan.